Welcome to the Mortise and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 32, and I'm Joshua Klein. I'm Mike Updegraff. And we got uh, uh, issue 11 is super close. Yes. Uh, I have been working on the design, uh, getting that. But it's, I would say it's basically done now. We just have a few small details to put together. Yeah, it's always um, the details that get us. Yeah, yeah. So it's like basically done. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh. three days of details. Yeah. No, but um, so yeah, we're working through those last few things, and it's going out to uh, Megan Fitzpatrick for copy editing uh, this weekend, and uh, yeah, then next week we're going to send it off to the printer. So issue eleven, um, we're enthusiastic about it. It's a lot of variety, and sort of the, some of our authors are back and forth with. Uh, complimentary con- yeah. conflicting ideas they about- fill out the argument yeah from so, both sides yeah it's really great um looking forward to getting that out yeah totally and um so if you'll recall a few podcasts ago we invited listeners to um to get a free t-shirt basically <laughs> what we said was hey folks if you want uh, the chance to get a free t-shirt from us we want you to leave a um, an entertaining review on iTunes. Mm-hmm. We didn't say it had to be positive, uh, though we like positive. What is it with all those negative comments <laughs> you got, we got from you all? Right. No, uh, there are some great comments. It was really fun to read through those, um, you know, some clever ones and stuff like that. Uh, so, but I want to read the one that we've decided yep. is the best one. And Stand it's, out. it's actually so good that we've kind of based this podcast around this comment Uh okay um so this is from someone who calls him or herself that demmed pimpernel so before i uh read this i want to say to that demmed pimpernel uh reach out to us info at mortisandtenonmag.com uh you'll have to somehow prove who you are i don't know how (laughs) we'll do that actually but uh we need to see your id yeah i guess so that That demmed pimpernel but uh we want to get you a t-shirt and uh Everyone else, uh, thank you for sending in comments and, and whatnot. But uh, I'm just going to read this. And uh, let's do it again. That was yeah, fun. That was fun. We'll do it again. Uh, more feedback, and we'll do a shirt again next time because I don't know why the heck not. That yeah. was super fun to, to see what people were saying and all the funny and clever comments. So I want to see more of it. Uh, so we'll do another one. Yeah. Uh, a shirt will be announced uh, next time. Uh, for the most creative, outlandish, and enter- entertaining, <laughs> entertaining uh, review. Thoughtful is good. Thoughtful, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that demmed Pimpernel says this. Um, the, the heading, right, of this comment is, Come for the work, Zen. Stay for the guilt. All right. I once heard a vegan say, Meat eaters only feel judged when a vegan identifies themselves because deep down, you know you're doing something too immoral. The vegan doesn't have to say anything about you. That judgment is entirely from inside you. This is that, but woodworking. (laughs) Really, a religion or lifestyle podcast. As a city dweller with a job in manufacturing, no less, I get the distinct feeling Michael and Josh live in a different life, far away. At the same time, it connects deeply. I do have my workbench in a spare room. I did find myself shocked this weekend when I used a power tool for the first time in a long time. While the philosophy can get a bit Waldeny dime store or high school poster trite, hey. <laughs> I consistently move this to the top of my playlist when it drops. 
Much like when I read Walden, nothing they say is mind-blowing novel, but the simple truth and aptness of how they say it stays with me. I revisit their work constantly. After, I find myself fulfilled and at the same time feeling like I am doing life wrong. <laughs> I do often have to remind myself they are fully absorbed in this work. The podcast often seems like a snapshot of their lives. That is true. Uh, very deliberate, but a photo of where they are on that day. They also agree with each other a lot, and it becomes them patting each other on the backs. That's just because we're right a lot. Okay, sorry. No, we're not. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd love to hear, not necessarily pushback, but criticism. I'd love to hear them talk about some of the legitimate criticism of the homesetting lifestyle, or that the hand tool movement, regardless of the open philosophy, is largely a community of middle to upper class white men. Still, this is a favorite podcast of a favorite periodical. Uh, so that's a great comment. Yeah, that was, I mean, all those comments were great. A lot of interesting uh, rabbit trails with, with, uh, to talk about and, and observe. Um, and so we would like to basically talk about each of those mm -hmm. uh, to varying degrees. Um, and we are thinking about kind of framing this as things we argue about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, uh, this reviewer has different things, but that we want to be able to talk about it because it's actually interesting that that comment um, of it's insightful to say, you know, I'm listening to this podcast and you guys just keep agreeing on everything you're talking right. about because I've listened to different things before that I've listened to different podcasts. Um, you know, there's this one couple and. You know, they're just back and forth saying, oh, I know, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're just agreeing they're all like the time. They're like each other's cheerleaders. It's sort of, yeah, they're yeah. sort of cheering each other on. And it just kind of gets old. You know, I'm right. really not, it, it does get old. Um, and so that's an interesting thing. I've thought about that. You know, is that like what Mike and I do? Is this, are we just sort of cheering each other on? But it's, it's actually, it's interesting because basically every single day we're debating about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, our work day here is together in this wood shop and every morning we start and we just kind of launch into some uh, discussion um, about uh, tooling or economics or society or technology or whatever, um, theological debates or something. Right. We're, we're kind of back and forth. And so when we come onto this podcast, um, most everything we've talked about, we have already or we talk about in the podcast, we've already talked about for hours, right. back and forth, and pushing on each other's incons inconsistencies and trying to draw out and refine our thinking. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting observation, um, but there are uh, definitely things that we still continue to uh, jab each other with, and uh, <laughs> yeah. he's still got a lot to learn. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. yeah, totally. And so, a lot yeah, to we teach. Thought that that's a, it's an important thing to talk about that the whole nature of everything we're discussing is always a discussion. It's always a debate. It's always something we're working on. And so we wanted to draw some of that out today. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely absolutely true that this podcast is kind of a snapshot of where we are. Mm -hmm. Often we, we're like, okay, so what do we want to do a podcast about this week? And it's something that we've been discussing already. Yeah, right. There are hours of... Uh, of uh, talk behind each podcast you know when we when we outline these things we've been going over this stuff we've been reading books about these things and so um we we can kind of maybe rub off the rough edges a little bit i've definitely heard podcasts that are maybe a number of individuals who you know are on opposite sides of the country 
and they're they're recording from their home in California and their home in Massachusetts and whatever and they put it together for a podcast and so they don't they don't really discuss stuff beforehand and that's you know they tend to argue with each other or even sometimes talk past each other because mm -hmm. they're missing some of the point you know they haven't been able to hash things out as much uh, but we do we want to talk about um, some of the things the points uh, that this commenter made uh, that are really solid points well and the thing is what I would say is it's not that um, it's not just that we've agreed to disagree or we've honed in on things that we do agree with it's that truly we are struggling through these questions together right. every day yeah so we're um, although there's a few instances in which we kind of like depart and we can't really make sense of each other's way of take on it we really are kind of unified we're coming through these things at the same time so we kind of come out with the same yeah um ideas and same thinking yeah Every you you've definitely convinced me of some things and maybe i've convinced you of something yes yeah, definitely so in all of our writing it's back and forth and editing each other and saying this is a bad argument man this is yeah, not hold doesn't up. make sense <laughs> so so we're sort of we think of our our writing and publishing and, and even this podcast as sort of a a unified presentation because that's how we've learned together so. yeah and that's a good point um, I would make that point because we have just finished um, working through our authors um, articles and things like that and we talk about this each time mm -hmm. to be a writer you have to have a pretty thick skin especially when your work is edited um, you know whenever I back for goodness what was it issue two I wrote a, a book recommendation and I was like really kind of like do you think josh was gonna like this and i i didn't know like i was really like guarded and cautious about it and really wanted to be defensive but we we i realized and and something joshua that you said is just you know you're working together to make it as good as possible so sometimes there are lots of changes that will need to be made to make it as good as possible and i've realized you know that and as we edit each other's articles and then edit each other's thoughts in discussion, <laughs> you know, there are ways to improve any way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, but there are some practices that we won't give an inch on. Yeah. Well, that's because <laughs> there's, only, <laughs> there's only one way to think about it. Right. Uh, no, I mean, there, there are different things uh, like there's, we have this this running. It's not really a joke, uh, but this running joke that we talk about because uh, we have this practice. It's we. There's some of the debates think, oh, we did talk about the saw nib. Before. The saw nib. Oh, let's not go the, there. Yeah, let's not bring that Touchy. one up. But, uh, but we've talked about some of these, you know, silly woodworker debates. Um, and I would say the saw nib is just a, a theory. That's a goofy thing. Right. But in there's a few practical things like how you approach a given task mm -hmm. that um, we've learned to work together in the wood shop, but we also have separate bench spaces, of course, right. and separate tools. Um, and even down to the sp specific tools and the way that I have my plane set up or whatever, you know, we don't really share our tools because we have our unique ways we do it. But um, one of the things that we found that we just cannot see <laughs> eye to eye on um, is the whole, the, the funny thing about the, the planes, whether you set them down on the sole or on the side. Right. The, the side of the plane. Yep. And we've gone over this over and over and over and we i will find no... i will find because i'm a i'm a sit your plane on the side person okay and i found this one period painting of, one. A, 
of a plane what? on its side and i'm like aha and then joshua will show me you know like four and he'll of the plane sitting on their souls and he'll be like aha and so i'm like well you know they didn't get all the details right in these paintings yeah um and so we we do we go back and forth on the pros and cons joshua's like i don't want to you know nick off the end of my finger by bumping my plane well so this sounds like to someone who's not a woodworker they'd say that what the heck yeah that's what you guys disagree about that's really stupid that no how about something substantially disagree about um but in terms of workflow i mean the the reason this is even discussed at all is um i'll say from my end what i'm concerned about um this is workflow you have sharp tools you have um, you have holdfasts in your bench. You have all this stuff going on. You have uh, maybe a freshly planed pine board sitting there. And uh, you have all this stuff out on your bench. And you're moving stuff around, working through operations, uh, setting tools aside, grabbing them. You're trying to be in this fast workflow. And you, when you reach back for that sharp tool, you're going to set it down the same, to- same way every time so that you're not grabbing the wrong end of it, right? And... So for me, I find it to be really important uh, in, in my workflow to have my, my planes down on the sole for a few reasons. One is, uh, I think we probably mentioned on the podcast, uh, the workbench surfaces in this shop are not show surfaces. Right. They're not bowling alley, polished, smooth uh, surfaces. They're all beat up and dinged and whatever. So I'm not worried about my plane scratching my workbench top. That's not a concern. Um, and so... What I want to do is I want to put that, it's not only sharp and dangerous for my knuckle to bump against it, that is a potential, but it also is, um, it's, pro- it's, it's protecting my skin, but it's also protecting my edge because my edge is fragile. So if I have my bench laid on the side and I pull a hold fast out and I bump the plane, mm. I don't want it to be the edge because that's it. I'm, right. My edge is toast and I'm going to the grinder to get that huge yep. you know, chip out of it. Um, so I would rather dent the side of my wooden plane, which I actually did. My uh, walnut four plane, it was like the day after I finished making it. Oh. It's all nice. I don't remember what it was. It was some tool and ding, right on the side of the plane. And I was like, ah, yep. well, whatever. It's the first of many. but Right. Um, Patina. So for me, it, it actually it sounds silly, but it's sort of a, it's a practical thing. Safety for me, safety for my tool. But then the the other piece of it that i find to be really useful is that when i'm in the workflow and i'm grabbing boards and moving stuff i'm not reaching over and tipping up a tool and pulling it out of this other position it's already in position i just grab the the tote grab the handle and it's already in my hand ready to go um so those are the things in my mind um that i think about with it and i don't know why do you put it on the side mike i, <laughs> yeah, I want to so- hear um, Again. <laughs> when, when I, you know, I'd been doing uh, boat building for a long time. And before that, I had done house carpentry. And so for me, when I am, when I was working on something, my, um, that the surface I was working on is also where I sat my tool. So it, it's like laying a teak deck, right? You don't set your plane iron down on the teak deck, you tip it over. Um, and you know, if, if I'm doing, uh, finished carpentry. If I'm doing trim, uh, you know, your little block plane is sit- sitting on the side on the windowsill. You don't want any risk of damaging that surface. Um, and so I kind of started doing that. I was also, I definitely see 
a good bit of that in um, like uh, Japanese woodworking, mm-hmm. where the the planes, the two or three planes, are lined up on their sides very neatly in preparation for um, for their use. And so I just always kind of started doing that. Um, I remember reading, is it in Hayward where he talks about the practice of planes? Um, was that Hayward? He yeah, probably so he was. said he talked about. Um, how the practice of setting a plane on its side has faded with the use of metal-bodied planes because of the risk of knocking them out of adjustment, sitting them on their sides. And I thought, ooh, that, that's scoring a point for me. <laughs> the people who put their planes sold down are because of the metal-bodied, the mass-produced planes uh, in circulation now. <laughs> so what he didn't say and what I inferred was that before that, Everyone put their planes on their sides. Until you look at some 18th century paintings of woodshops. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Except for that one. Except for the one. Which I, I should get framed, actually, and put up here. That's a beautiful It painting. is a great painting. Um, we, we should do a, put up a link to that so that people no, can study the, the proper way. But uh, all this to say, like, how much does that really matter? Yeah, I mean, it... Uh, I... I want to say, oh, it doesn't really matter. But there's this other sense in which um, I do think it's important that we become stubborn woodworkers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I think it's really important to develop ways that you approach your work so that you can get your mind around it and develop, this is how I cut my dovetails. You know, Mike and I, every single person does a few different steps differently or orients the board a little bit differently in the vice or something for cutting dovetails say i think it's really important that you become stubborn you find a way get good at it and refuse to budge and i think that's actually not just um it's not just something i came up with on my own i, I say that because that is that is like always what you hear about uh, old apprenticeships that mm. when an apprentice was learning from a master in a shop the master was totally rigid right there is only one right way to do this this. is the way and that's not arbitrary it's it's saying listen find a way do it and don't just spend the rest of your life flirting with all of these other possible ways you could do it just get good at something for goodness sake and move on yeah and so i would say it's you know whatever direction you move with say the planes on the sole or on the side i think it's important that you are fixed on it and you develop work habits that revolve around it and then you do not budge from it and so when you're working you know exactly where your plane is without even looking you can just reach and you know that's where i set it i know it's safe Um, same thing with when i'm using chisels and i set them down i know how i set them where i set them right and so i'm it actually is i i would almost say use the word frustrating (laughs) when someone else is in my space and moving my tools around right. because I'm walking in and I'm like, oh, Wait. whoa, I almost grabbed the, oh, wow. And I have to put it proper. I have to put mm-hmm. it correct, which means the way that I, the, the groove that I'm in, I need to stay there or all of my work starts unraveling. Yeah. So there's, I think that's healthy <clears throat> to some degree to become, it's, it's, I don't know, it's weird to say it's healthy to be stubborn, but in a sense, when you're doing craft work, you, you got to have a way that you do it and get good at it. Yeah, um, Robert Persig in his book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, talks about a certain kind of mechanic 
whose shop is a complete disaster, but he knows where everything is. And he said, but if you move one tool six inches, he'll probably spend months looking for it. So <laughs> it's just that, that knowledge of where you put something and where you know it will be. Um, and a point that we'll talk about a little bit later is just, you know, the idea that it's good to avoid becoming homogenized. Like, yeah. this is the way to do something, so everyone should do it that way. Um, well, because that's, I mean, yeah, we were we were talking about how that's sort of the the heart of uh, what a movement is is it's a it's a homogenizing yeah. force. Yeah. That it's saying, hey, I got this really great idea, I have this observation, and this is the right way, and let's apply this broad scale. Let's apply this to everything. And yep. then other people catch the wind of this movement, and all of a sudden it's this homogenizing force. Yes. So the, one of the things that this listener commented on was the hand tool movement. So mm -hmm. we wanted to we wanted to touch on that. Like, what what exactly is a movement, and why yeah. do they usually come to nothing? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's a movement. Is it? I, I would. Think, I think of it as a time-bound response to a specific situation or some observation or, you know, like I was saying, something a person observes and they say, this isn't right. We need to, you know, yeah, address react. this. And so then yeah. in time, typically a leader or a few leaders say, we're going to do this. And, you know, it becomes this thing and people follow this idea and these, this, these leaders. And that's sort of the heart of what a, a movement is. It's not always highly, um, you know, organized and predetermined and everything. Sometimes it's somewhat organic, but regardless, a movement is all about being, it's, it's an ideological thing. It's mm -hmm. saying we have this idea and we want to apply this broad scale and that, yeah, that is going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, uh, more about like our own identity it's like what we can put on a bumper sticker or yeah. something like that yeah um because we find great value in identifying with a specific movement but of course you know those movements because they're a reaction to something they can't really exist without that thing right. you know they're they're like the pendulum trying to swing back <laughs> in the other way so if if you are if you take the hand tool movement as a let's say a, let's let's just say it's a reaction to the overuse of the industrial model or whatever mm -hmm. you know like power tools are are horrible so I'm going to react by saying only hand tools. Yeah. If it's a movement, then we actually need the the power tool movement so that we have something to argue with all the time. But <laughs> if it's a if yeah if, if, it's, that's what if it indeed is a movement. Yeah. But. We kind of don't feel like that's what it well, is. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of, uh, you know, in high school, I went through all the stages that are, you know, are somehow essential for young boys to go through. I went through my, my Kurt Cobain grunge stage, right? Mm. And the grunge movement of Seattle. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's yeah, who right. I am. Right? I am like Kurt Cobain, you know? <laughs> you know? And I'm glad what, you're still with us. Yeah, yeah. What's so funny about that is the whole idea was, Hey, we're countercultural. Right. We're not like all those mainstream people. And it became a cool thing where you have trash jeans and, you know, whatever, messy yeah. hair and stuff. And you, don't and you can buy them in every store on the block. And it became the coolest thing around yeah. and it became mainstream. And they said, oh, this kind of stinks. And that movement fizzled out because yeah. when you were framing everything as 
we're the countercultural, you know, edgy people, and then that takes off, it's a self-defeating thing. Right. Um, and it's the same thing I remember. The next terrible development in my uh, my <laughs> life was getting into, you know, sort of like um, the heavy metal gothic stuff. And so, you know, I went to Hot Topic and bought all those T-shirts to assert how unique an individual I am. Right. Yeah. They're <laughs> and all, everybody they're all had mass the same produced shirt. in China. Yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of thing, that's a movement, man. And that, yeah. is, that is just so um, self-defeating and that's not getting you anywhere. But but I think what's what, instead of saying, OK, is this a hand tool movement? I think we need to say, OK, well, a bunch of people are interested in hand tools right now. And so I think the most responsible among us should be saying, why? Mm-hmm. Why are people saying this? What are they responding to that's so prevalent in culture? Right. And what are the things, what are the principles we can learn from this and say, maybe the reason everyone's so so excited about rough sawn, reclaimed coffee tables and coffee shops mm. is because there's something missing here. Yeah. And it's not just the rough sawn, but there's, there's something, there's a reason everybody's interested in it. And I think those are moving beyond the, the movement thing. Um, you know, like, uh, what is it, like hand-cut French fries and all yeah, this. Yeah, hand-crafted you know, whatever. milkshakes. But I think instead of poo-pooing that and saying, oh, that's just dumb, or fully embracing it, we can say, well, that's interesting. Yeah. How did that become mainstream? What right. is, what What's are the people draw? around us hungry for? And I think that's a much more fruitful uh, way to observe life and people around you to be able to say, yeah, you're right. You know what? We do, we do need to be creative and, and make things or whatever, however you, whatever you're observing there. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, every, every era in a culture, right? You can look around you and everyone, probably everyone listening to this podcast has opinions about what's right and what's wrong with the place they're living right and so you know you could align with a movement to counter that or you could just look and say well you know like what do i actually want to see like sure what do i want life to look like what do i want um you know if you have some opposition to crass materialism what are you actually going to do in your life to to set that aside yeah yeah and i think i would say for somebody to the kind of personality it's not a it's not a kind of person but the kind of personality or inclination that wants to grasp onto a movement and say this is my identity i am this movement or this new trend this new hashtag that's going around right this is who i am um or the person who's just constantly reacting against it i think both of those things are signs of immaturity actually that i think you know when you you have to be able to look at that stuff and say and be separate from it and say i want to learn from this mm-hmm. and i want to grow up and not get sucked into it and let them set the terms for it but i right. want to be able to observe yeah and, and make choices about my life uh having learned to yeah about looking at people's responses yeah listen situation. and hear and process yeah um so another part of this comment, uh, which is, uh, let me see, I'll find it here. Yeah, he talks about the fact that the hand tool movement, which we've just talked through the idea of a movement, uh, regardless of the open philosophy, is largely a community of middle to upper class white men. 
Uh, and that is, in our experience, a correct observation. Yeah, at least is. in this in this country, yeah, that is true. We don't do, um, you know, like market surveys or anything. We've never done that, done any market research, and but um, based on what we've heard from other uh, publications and woodworking publishers, and based on everybody we've met at woodworking shows, that definitely seems to be an, an accurate assessment of. Yeah. the the makeup of the market that um, that we're in the woodworking in America yeah just publishing. woodworking in general really yeah uh, woodworking publishing and that kind of thing um, that's, yeah so it's not even actually a hand tool no it's not at all in general yeah for sure and that is that is where the market is that's where the interest is if you look at at those kind of surveys and stuff um, and so we would say I mean let's get it let's get everybody else in on this because yeah, I mean, this that's, is <laughs> that's that's kind of the whole that's not the whole point of M&T, but it kind of is. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole idea of like this, um, when everything, our focus on pre-industrial work is it's pre-industrial. We're mm -hmm. not talking about um, historic work or, or just old timey stuff, but we're, our focus is on pre-industrial. Yeah. And the reason is the whole idea of industrialism is homogenizing culture. Yeah. Or more specifically, homogenizing cultures yeah. to all reflect what is most commodifiable and which is most uniform. And so our focus on pre-industrial is trying to move outside of industrial homogenization and saying, you know what, there are so many rich cultural her heritages yes, around plural. the world. Plural. Thank you. Yeah. Not just one heritage that we all have, but heritages all around the world that are that have for so long <laughs> operated outside of industrial uh, production and, and values. And that's exactly the heart of what m and is trying to do is to say, let's get outside of that homogenizing paradigm yeah. and find out what people in all these different cultures all around the world have been doing. Um, and so that's been our focus with m and And you know, it's important, I think, to start where you are. Mm -hmm. We live in New England. And so we started talking about historic New England furniture in right. the tradition that we're familiar with. Um, and I don't claim to be an authority on anything else, mm -hmm. right? But our, our express goal has been to try to connect with a bunch of other people. And that's what's yeah. been so yeah. like invigorating. It's so cool because, you know, as we've said time and time again, there is no end to the, the depths of what we can pursue and explore. And yeah. we get, you know, other authors who are passionate about something or we get, um, you know, our the research grant and we have these um, mm. researchers chasing down these leads, you know, all over the globe. And then we, we get little hints of different things that are going on, different, um, you know, like a, a woodworking study in some other country, some other continent. And we want to know more because that all falls under the scope of pre-industrial woodworking. Mm -hmm. That is... It has local and regional flair to it. There's there's this local tradition that may, might be totally different than than anything you see anywhere else. Yeah. And we love that. Yeah. We want more of that. Just the other day, we saw this uh, crazy image uh, of these Cambodian, uh, I think, Cambodian guys doing some sort of, you know, tree harvesting. I don't know what their particular activity was but there was some crazy 
what was it called? It was some kind of Cambodian axe that was for scribing a circle that yes. denoted which what tree was you're gonna... that. And it was so hard to tell because the tree that they were cutting like took up most of the frame of the background. We're like that whole thing is the tree, and they're yeah. gonna cut it down with that tool. And that's the kind of stuff that we just can't get. We're, over. Like, we're like, how do we know? How do we learn tool? more about that? We, yeah, we want to know more about what's going on in this image. So I think that's what's cool about the the craft research grant that we're doing is that that's kind of the express goal is to uh, to get that information out, you know, pulled out from wherever it's sitting in some archive somewhere where those people right there know about it. But we want to shed light on it and say, that's so awesome. I've never heard of such a thing. And we're continuously overturning these tools that we've never heard of before. Yep. We're saying, what in the world is that? Yep. I want to know. Let's yep. do an article. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, th there are so many different, you know, handcraft backgrounds uh, throughout the world. And, um, you know, it's not it's not limited. We don't see it. It's not like the, the let's say, boutique hand tool market in this country, mm -hmm. which does have a, a pretty uh, fixed audience. But uh, hand tool tradition throughout mm -hmm. the world is, is all over the map. Yeah. Literally. I mean, I meant that as a metaphor, but it works either way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how we feel about that. I yeah. Guess. I mean, well, Mike and I, we've been talking for, I don't know, a couple weeks, um, about, uh, an author who we are been deeply influenced by and excited by a guy named Yvonne Illich. Um, and he's talked about a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, mm. And that's what kind of set our thinking about a lot of it. It's, um, it's sort of a, I mean, he called it conviviality, mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of what we mean by pre-industrial. It's moving outside of the industrial economy and, and making things what he called convivial, a convivial way of life. And so it's something that you're able to do for yourself. You have um, things you can do at home, do with loved ones. Um, and those are the kinds of things that the um, the market economy isn't really able. You can't you can't really mm. put a, a dollar value on that. Those are just separate from that. Mm -hmm. And so, I think that's what's so special about pre-industrial work um, is that it's not something that you can put a market value on and say, well, what is the most efficient way to do this? And let's right. recognize this and whatever. That's what's so fascinating is it's just outside of that whole paradigm right so we've been deeply inspired by Illich and we've been talking about him a lot lately and um if you're interested to follow up on that um the the primary book that um we've been helped by is a book called tools for conviviality by Yvonne Illich um and that book is just super fascinating and just got us pumped and so thinking, yeah it's, it's worth reading with a highlighter yeah with the highlighter and then go back and you know make notes but um, celebrating the, the cultures around the world, that's, that's where we're coming from, is this sort of Illichian right. <laughs> uh, way of thinking about it. Yep. Uh, he's, he's a great resource. Um, so other, other things that we wanted to talk about are, uh, so this idea of uh, shortcomings and critiques of the back-to-land and homesteading uh, movements? Was it movement? No kind of like homesteading lifestyle. Yeah. So critiques, shortcomings. Um, in terms of, like, for example, uh, 
there's been a lot of talk in recent years about uh, Thoreau and kind of criticisms of Thoreau, right? Thoreau yeah. wrote Walden. He had all these like lofty things to say about society. And uh, you might have this perspective that Thoreau decided to step away and he went off to his cabin in the woods and he lived a deliberate life, you know, sucking the marrow out of life and whatever. That sounds great. It does sound <laughs> great. Um, and of course, what you don't hear is like... Uh, he had friends to give him his tools. He had a friend to let him live on his land. He had his mom do his laundry. You know, uh, these these other things um, that are not really mentioned in, in Walden, right? Yeah. Um, Thoreau, when he went out there, he uh, basically, even in th- those days, uh, Walden Pond was basically in the suburbs, <laughs> of Mm -hmm. Concord, like there's a rail line on one side of the pond. Yeah. And so he was... All throughout Walden, he's talking about that. Yeah. He walks into town all the time. Yeah, strolling to get some some wine and some barley cakes and whatever. And um, so it is is not like the uh, the, the wilderness lifestyle, the self-sufficient lifestyle that often people hold hold it up to be. Um, But of course... That's not what he was really after. I mean, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I think if someone said, oh, yeah, Thoreau's full He fell of it short. Because yeah. he wasn't really fully self-sufficient. He'd say, when did I ever say I was yeah. completely self-sufficient? Yeah. Didn't you read my book? Yeah. He's <laughs> what like, are you talking about? He wanted to do an experiment yeah. in some ways. Yeah. And he wanted a quiet place to think, really. Yeah. A good place to write a book. He maybe. was talking about, because, you know, he's a teacher and he was talking about um, students and students going to college in ways that they can, um, you know, make their own house inexpensively, but in a way that's fulfilling. And so he was doing this as an experiment to see maybe a student could, you know, borrow an axe and hew yeah. their own little place and live there. And so he was, he never for, for a second said, oh, I'm completely independent and I'm not, you know, connected to anyone right. else in a, in a community at all. Does he never pretended to just say that. Um, so I think that a lot of people have that perception mm-hmm. um, that, that it's like that a the, purity of ideals that anyone who, yeah, that anyone who has an ideal or wants to be away or to make things by hand that, well, they're just their heads up in the clouds and they don't realize how dependent they actually are. Well, no, maybe it's because they do realize how dependent they are, that they want to make stuff, right? They want to make sure they're grounded in stuff that they can do. Yeah, and there's also a great danger in just saying, well, if this person didn't 100% hold to the purity of the, their ideals, then uh, then I no longer respect them. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, who, who was it? I, I was just reading something about ideals are something that we never attain, but we should always aim for. Yeah. You know, so um, Thoreau in very real ways, like the one day he strolled into Concord and was arrested and thrown in jail for not paying his taxes. And he came up with this this like paragraph in, in Walden about how he refuses to pay taxes to a, a government that would be willing to enslave human beings, right? Or allow that. And so he, how many of us really are willing to go to jail for something we know to be wrong? And so Thoreau lived that out in that way. Now, in other ways, he 
was not as ideologically pure as we might think. Like I said, his mom was doing his laundry. He he really was living off of uh, Ralph Waldo Emer- Emerson's money. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, there are many other examples. I was thinking, whenever I was a kid, I loved that whole uh, Biosphere 2 experiment. Mm-hmm. You remember that thing? is out in, like, the Arizona desert. And it was supposed to be this self-sufficient biodome, right? Which is a Pauly Shore movie. Yeah, that's the one I'm familiar with. <laughs> okay. So Biosphere 2 <laughs> is, the, is the serious version of biodome, right? <laughs> and, and they believe that this was the future of, of having um, a colony on Mars or on the moon or whatever. Mm. And uh, it sounds terrible. They, so it was, in, in some ways it was a success because it showed how many different ways that pro- kind of project could fail. So that, that's okay. valuable. It's better to learn that here than on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like they had uh, a massive number of cockroaches just take over, right? Because, you know, a few get in and all of a sudden they monopolize, right? Oh, yeah. it, it's things like that, like those butterfly effect kind of factors mm-hmm. that one thing becomes like the um, a very ecological thing, like the, the peak predator or whatever. Yeah. And um, then they had issues with oxygen all the time because it was supposed to be this closed environment. And then they had other issues like, people trying to sneak supplies in and people trying to do other stuff so i mean really you could look at the the ideal of biosphere 2 and say it fell short um but then they also learned so much Mm -hmm. so um you know i would say again you aim for the ideal and you know you're gonna fall short but what you gain in the meantime is very valuable well and what i would say i mean if if the goal of that was trying to uh, have it perfect and it's either like a pass-fail thing, then I say you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yes, totally. Because you're trying to do something that no one's ever done before. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't work perfectly, you don't say, well, that was a waste. I should have never even started. Yeah. That's not how we should be living our lives, right? I mean, we have that. The whole idea of ideals is that it's something we strive for. Yeah guaranteed we will not hit it Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's a failure and so just give up and just don't even try um and so i think that's what's so valuable about ideals is that you're not bound to feel guilty when you don't meet them right that's what's so great about them right you continue to say hey wow this is great this is exciting and you keep shooting for it yeah and you're okay with the fact that you're not always up there in fact if you do hit it your ideals are too low you should be raising them higher yeah. so you're always striving for something more rich, more exciting. Yeah. Um, and I think if you're going to do a life that is biosphere, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to try to have an experiment in living like Bill Copperthwaite, yeah. you know, he had this 50 years in the woods and he had ideals and he had a lot of uh, things he wanted to do with that experiment of living. Right. Um, and... I can't imagine he would have told anybody, yep, and I did it perfectly. I was successful. I accomplished it. Mission yeah. accomplished. I think yeah. he would say, well, no, the whole point is I, every day I'm experimenting and struggling and trying to figure out yeah. different possibilities. Yeah. What works, what I can phase out, or I'll phase something out and go, actually, no, I kind of like that. Yeah. Let's bring it back in. That is something I'm willing to, you know... I'm willing to live with. I actually prefer that. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the stuff, like, we we talk about, he had so many ideas about education and handcraft and things like that. 
and but he also like didn't really raise his own food mm-hmm. right um he he talked about how you know Hannaford and, and Machias had more freezer space than he would ever have so yeah, why not right. use that <laughs> uh I mean in that I mean that's a very pragmatic approach to to food um and and I think some people would say well that's hypocrisy then and I would say no it's only hypocrisy hypocrisy if he said I raise all my own food right yeah and then he there's no boxes. deception that's, there that's he was hypocrisy. very upfront with that it just wasn't his goal he wasn't yeah. trying to provide all of his own food yeah um he talked about paper towels in a similar way. Yeah. Like he, he actually, so this is the thing. He thought very deeply about every aspect of his life. And he decided paper towels were the way to go. These things are great. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he said that, but he, he weighed them in his mind. Yep. You know, paper towels versus washing towels and stuff all the time. And he said for what few uses he needs them for, they're worth having around. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that to me is, it is a, a consistent way of doing it. You have an ideal and you weigh your decisions against that ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked too about um, Scott and Helen Nearing, who kind of, sort of started the whole Back to the Land movement. Um, they were in Vermont for a while and then they moved out here to uh, the Blue Hill Peninsula when Vermont got like too crowded, I guess. <laughs> well, their farm did because everybody wanted. Yeah, to everybody wanted to go see them. the nearing farm. And they said we need to get away from the country. Yeah, let's go to the country. Let's go. Let's go to the coast of Maine. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, had extensive gardens, and they came up with all these ways of, um, uh, you know, like building homesteads and things like that. But uh, the other side of it that they they never explored um, is like raising animals. They just mm-hmm. never did that. In fact, they were vegans. You know, they, they didn't have any kind of animal products whatsoever. So some people might say, well, that's easy. If all you're worried about are your tomatoes, you know. Yeah, grown carrots. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so they never explored that whole aspect of, of uh, you know, human the food sourcing. The ecology of the world. Yes, right. <laughs> like every culture has always raised animals for food or raised animals to lay eggs or whatever like that. So they never went there, but that wasn't their aim. Their aim yeah. wasn't to recreate an agrarian lifestyle in their backyard. They wanted specific things, and that's what they aimed for. Uh, one thing I was thinking about um, with that uh, critique that the reviewer had, um, talking about the downfalls of homesteading and that kind of thing, is um, I've often heard both, if, you, if this makes sense, non-homesteaders and experienced homesteaders scoff at the term simple living Mm. (laughs) and what they say is ha yeah right what is simple simple. yeah Yeah, right simple and i i would actually push back on that and say uh no i think it is actually an accurate description i think you're confusing the word simple for easy right no it's not easy living it's very hard and challenging and constantly you're out straight you're in over your head you don't understand so Quick, quick story. Uh, I, I have goats. My wife and I, we have goats, and um, we have we had three pregnant goats this year, and we there was a drought last year and a lot of problems. We've had lots of goat kids and no problems. They basically just fall out. Right, leaping. You go around. in one morning That's and awesome. There are the right? babies. Yeah. This year, so far of the two that um, had their kids, uh, only two of the five came out alive. Three dead goat babies. Yeah. Uh, 
not fun. No. Pretty traumatizing. And it's not stuff that you, you know, you see on Instagram. I'm sure there are like Instagram homesteading people that post all the stuff about cute baby goats. And they are cute. But the, the hard reality of this stuff is that it's not easy. But that doesn't mean it's not simple. The uh-huh. idea of simple is that it's, it's um, like I think Copperthwaite was the one who said, it's not um, back to the land, it's down to earth. Uh-huh. And I think that's kind of the idea of simplicity. It's saying, forget the externalities and all the complicated uh, modern amenities and devices that you can have. Just keep it simple. Yeah. Have some animals, have a garden. And work your butt off like crazy. Yeah. Because it's so rewarding. And I think that's the idea of simple living, not easy living. Yeah. Um, and I want to apply that to other areas of my life that um, if we say simple woodworking, like hand yeah. tools, that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. It's right. actually harder yes. because it's simple. And so the thing is, like in, in that, that way of classifying, hard work is actually simple applying effort to something lots of your own effort you're not you're not going out and purchasing a a hydraulic gas engine powered wood splitter to split your firewood you're just swinging an axe that's simple even though it's hard it's exercise they're they're almost exact opposites in in a one sense because technology is about it's all about complicating it so that it's easy right yeah a d technology a way to do it would be to simplify it and do more so that labor. it's harder yep um and whether it's physical dexterity it's you know like your your hands it's more challenging to do it or it's just physically draining you don't have the endurance that's simple right and it's hard yeah yeah i mean people <laughs> that's talk the heart about of homesteading <laughs> people who have you know through hike the appalachian trail or something they talk about the simplicity of just putting one foot in front of the other i mean that's what they they iron like they mm. they distill the the whole thing to that yeah but on the other hand they're you know at times just in physical agony and and there's like storms and they have to worry about food and um but the simple act of putting your left foot in front of your right foot mm-hmm. is i mean just counter that with driving that distance right yeah it's gonna go a lot quicker but you have this whole infrastructure thing to deal with. Yeah, it's you have much more complicated, automobile. but it's yeah. a lot easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, those are those are really valuable distinctions to make, I think. Um, you know, when, and again, talking about what the difference between a movement and uh, like a, a correction or a movement and seeing what kind of life you want and pursuing that. Um, well, I think part of that is if you're operating, if you dispense of the whole movement idea and you're just saying, Hey, I observe some things in life that I feel like I'm not getting, and I want to make some changes. Uh-huh. Everybody's at a different place and everybody has different circumstances and, and levels of freedom that they're able to, um, navigate within to be able to move toward that ideal that they set up. Yeah. Um, and that never ends. It never is static. Um, it's it's a temptation to think that that's static. Like I'll get to a place in which I will have enough money to do this thing, or right. I will finally have the time when I retire. Yeah. When then I'll X, have the time to do what I yeah. want to do. All that kind of thinking um, is 
is not going to get you to the point you want to be because there's always something blocking you. Mm-hmm. But if you say, where am I today and what yeah. can I do today? Um, that, like I said, that never changes and it's different for each person. Mike and I, our lives are not identical. We have similar values with handcraft in our lives and um, the kind of life we want our family to have. We homeschool our kids, both mm-hmm. families do. Um, and so we we value that, having our kids at home and that we're teaching them each day. But it looks different. Right. Because we have different lives and, and different uh, choices we make. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like I'm... Uh, Joshua, his house is, you know, I could, we could throw a rock and hit it it. out the window, you know, and so I'm, I'm driving 35 minutes to get here. And that has, that creates, um, you know, different perspectives in what I do. Like, for example, I do all the work on all our cars and I have the tools to do all that, right? I've, I've worked towards that skill set because, um, that's always been just something, you know, important to me in my life and also just to keep our vehicles running and that kind of thing. And I've been, for the past month, I've been uh, driving on the on the sunny days. Today wasn't actually sunny this morning. No. Um, but I had this old motorcycle that I bought last year that uh, my kids and I have fixed up and now I'm driving that. And I enjoy that. I enjoy tinkering. Um, but Joshua, you put on like a couple thousand miles on your car per year yeah right my wife not long ago she's like i just realized you like never leave (laughs) you never leave the property like we'll go through we we go to church on sunday about an hour away and she was saying like i realized because she was home for some reason she realized yeah you your car never moves like you just stay home yeah it's just quietly rotting over there right (laughs) you just got to get its pass inspection every year (laughs) <laughs> yeah, do it, get some rust repair done and call it good because it's so, not going to mechanically break down with so no, few miles. No, it's just no. the rust. Yeah, it's a preservation effort. I right. Think. But so here's the thing then. So this kind of plays out. You can just imagine. Think about how this plays out in the ecology of our lives, our two different lives. Yeah. <clears throat> I am able to have pigs on my property. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't have them currently, but we I just recently had pigs on my property. And because when they get out of the fence, I'm right here, and my wife yeah. can say, Joshua, the pigs, are, the pigs are in the woods. And I can yeah. run down. And you know what? Actually, not only that, but I have my good friend here with me, and he yeah. chases Chase them the down pigs. through the woods. So the fact that I work at home and I have that uh, ability, and we homeschool, uh, my wife is home all day, so we're all here all day. Um, we have the ability to do that kind of thing. Yeah. And so... Mike doesn't have that situation. Yeah. If the pigs get out 35 minutes yeah. away, it's that's yeah. it. I'm not my my wife is not going to want to chase pigs through the woods. <laughs> my kids might find that entertaining once. Once. <laughs> but oh my goodness, those things do not turn around. Yeah. That was They're entertaining. They're like small refrigerators. Yeah. Uh running through the woods. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it is just really interesting. Like everyone takes a different tack. Some people are moving in similar directions. And I think that there's a lot of value in in that. You know, like we all have our different, um, uh, the different goals that we have in our lives. But, you know, if you're fortunate enough to come across some people who are moving in a similar direction as you, you can 
you can gain a lot from each other. You can learn a lot from each other. Mm -hmm. um, you might actually have your mind changed on some things. You might change someone else's mind. Or you can just get along, you know? We talk about, um, we're talking about uh, community. And, you know, a lot of people see community these days as something that exists online, where you find all the people who think yeah. the same way that you do. And yeah, so, is, is that the definition of is community? Is that a community? Everybody in my community is someone I agree with. Yeah, because the they're, they're in that message board or they're on yeah. that group. And, and if I don't agree with you, you're not in my community because right. I have my tribe and my people. Right. I, that is just so exactly opposite from what community is. When you yep. have a neighbor who's next to you that you don't get along with or you don't have the same political views as or whatever... Yeah, that's what community is. Yeah. It's when you're learning how it's to. It's actually work with, getting along with those. It's people. actually <laughs> learning how to get along with them and be neighborly to your neighbors. Um, yeah, so I think that's really important to have this diversity of people in your life, um, so that as you're pursuing this stuff, like say different skill sets and different perspectives, you're saying, um, you know, we called our good friend Phil and he helped us with these goat problems we were mm, having yeah um and when i have car issues mike's the first one i talk to <laughs> um and so all of my problems i try to <laughs> right. try to fill my life with people who actually know right. how to do what i'm yeah. doing um and i think that's the the only recipe for success mm -hmm. right i mean it's not isolating yourself it's yeah. not being self-sufficient right that is a dead end it's an illusion too yeah um and you know, something that, that people say, because uh, the tendency in our world is uh, we see a big problem and we want to know what the solution is. We want to know the top-down way of fixing that. Like, what what uh, utopian model can we now apply that will work for everyone? Yeah. And um, I would say uh, that there is no such thing. Yeah. I mean, utopia literally means no place, right? So yeah. it doesn't exist. Um there's no perfect model that is the solution for what's wrong with the world today. Mm -hmm. um, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And, and I would say there's great danger in trying to universally supply a solution or universally apply a solution because everyone is different. Every life circumstance is different. Life here in, in, on the coast of Maine is not life on you know, the west coast of California or yeah. New York City or or Florida, or, or Latvia, yeah, or exactly, South or Taiwan. Africa, yeah, I mean, you can't just say this is what needs to happen. Yeah, and this is how we do it from the top down. Well, and so I'm working on a book right now. I have been for a year and a half, very piecemeal, and I've been working on some ideas about, you know, changing. It's kind of similar to the stuff we're talking about here. You know, how you can work craft into your life and different making changes, you know, toward that. Um, but I was thinking about this very question and this idea of people say, you know, if you're talking about um, critiquing technology, am I too technologically dependent in my life? Mm. So some people would say, oh, yeah, wow, I am. OK, well, what's the solution then? Right. And I was I've been grappling with that question, like, what's the solution? And what I ultimately came to is that is a technological answer. Right. Like that. To yeah. say what's the solution that I can apply to this to fix yep. it for me is the whole technological mindset. Yep. It's looking for something to put on it. But I, And so what I've been thinking about is 
we don't we shouldn't be looking for solutions we should be looking for responses hmm. and that is something that's um, attuned and attentive to your given context yeah. of your daily life your neighborhood your country yeah. your cultural heritage whatever you're saying here i am today here's my circumstance here's what i want to do here's my ideal and so you can say well what's an appropriate response what's hmm. a fruitful response to begin to move that direction so that way you can let go of the whole solutions thing you can let go of you know i want to read some fancy book written by some elite person telling me the way that the world should be instead you can say uh what are some ideals that i want to be shooting for and what are some practical ways i can begin to work that into my life yeah um, so that's, I think, fruitful, and that gives you an opportunity. That gives gives every single person an opportunity to begin to make headway, yeah. begin to move a direction that they want to be moving. Yeah, I mean, real difference, a real positive difference, isn't from the top down. It starts at the bottom with individuals making changes. Yeah. You know, like seeing what you want and starting to pursue it. Um, you know, saying what are my goals and how do I get closer to them. Mm-hmm. As long as you put your plane down on your soul, <laughs> you will be fine. Uh, all right. As soon as we stop recording this podcast, I'm going to go down and tip over all of Joshua's planes. So, hey, folks, thank you for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And again, um, we'd love to hear from you if you want to leave a, a clever review on iTunes. Uh, But if you have any comments or questions, you can leave them below. And thank you for listening. Mm